Hi, this is Shannon Chapman, host of the You Talk, I'll Listen podcast. My heart and prayers go out to the families of the servicemen and women who lost their lives or were wounded this past week in the attack on the Kabul airport. They were so young and had their whole lives ahead of them. I dedicate this episode to them. Our stories are what make us unique, but they're also what connect us as human beings. It's time to stop talking and start listening. This is You Talk, I'll Listen with Shannon Chapman. We celebrate our servicemen because very few of us are willing to put our lives on the line for this country and our freedoms. So very few of us know exactly what that experience is like. There's been a lot going on lately with getting our troops out of Afghanistan and all that chaos that's over there, prayers for the civilians that are trying to get out of the country. I wanted to hear from someone who has firsthand experience with what it's like to be a Marine in the U.S. military, who carries out these types of missions, and what that's like mentally. My guest this week is Daryl, a U.S. Marine and veteran. Daryl, thank you for being here. Hey, Shannon, thank you for having me. So, Daryl, what made you want to be a Marine, and how old were you when you joined? Yeah, I was. I was. I signed up at age twenty and graduated, and went to boot camp in January of two thousand one and graduated. So I was twenty years old. But what made me want to be a Marine? I didn't. I. It was one of them things. Like I was at Georgia Southern, and things went going right. Uh, we have a mutual cousin, and he had a situation come up. And like I said, me personally, things wasn't just going right with me, with school, family issues, different things was going on. And he was like, cuz, you might as well come with me. So I was like, if you're serious about going to the Marines, I'll go. I didn't know what I was signing up for. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know. You get off that bus and your feet hit them yellow footprints, it's, it's not a game. And the only way back out that gate is either you graduate or they kick you out. And nine times out of 10, you got to do something real crazy for them to kick you out. Because the Marine has low numbers for a reason. They say the few, the proud, it ain't but a few that like they go on that base and, and make it out. And so it's, a, it's an honor to be called a, a Marine. Honestly, I never, you know, I didn't even know branches existed. I just, I just knew it was military. So when I went into that recruiter's office, he explained it in a way that I had to understand it at that time. He was like, you went to Dalton High? And I said, uh, yeah. And he said, well, Dalton High is like the Marine Corps. He said, you was on the football team? That's us. We're the Marines. He said, the Army is like Northwest of Murray County. He said, that's like the Army Navy. He said, but then like the Air Force is like Southeast, you know? And so when he put it to me in a challenge like that, that was something I understood, but there's no place like Paris Island. There's a sign that said, uh, we make Marines. And that was something that I saw. They take you in the middle of the night, drop off. When I went through that process, that three-month process back in 2001, I went from January 15th of 2001 
to April 13th, which was Friday the 13th of 2001. <laughs> and they say we was, you know, that was something our, uh, our senior drill instructor said. He said, uh, you guys are true devil dogs. That's our nickname. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a true honor. When you sign up to be a Marine, there's a process before you actually become a Marine. What is that process like? To enlist in the Marine Corps, I mean, it's a process of, uh, you know, you meet your recruiter. You may meet the recruiter at, at your high school. Uh, the process is, you know, you, you go in and you meet the recruiter. They talk about your life experiences. They talk about your goals and how you think you could be a fit to serve as a Marine in the United States military. And then, you know, once that goes, I mean, it depends on the age of the, of the person, too. You know, some, some people want to go straight out of high school. So that recruiter may have to talk to mom and dad. You know, some people, they only need to hear it one time. Some, some people ain't just going to let their child. You know, I mean, it's got to make sense. Because you're giving your child to the government to be put into arm's way or the freedoms that a lot of people take for granted, you know? So, I mean, that process is, is some paperwork involved. Definitely have to have a, um, a ASVAB test. You got to have a, a decent score. I ain't going to say what my score was. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, you definitely, you know what I mean? There's, there's people who participate in drug activity. Different things like this, not saying that I did, but I'm saying like, you know, some people have to get clearances. Some some people try to escape to the military, you know, to get away from whatever they were doing in life. And, you know, if you have some record of some sort, you know, I mean, you got to get clearances. You know, I mean, you your, your recruiter, they really, really, really have to go to bat for you. I recruit my recruiter. He didn't have to, he didn't have to work that hard. You know what I mean? He was getting like a two for one. And then we convinced another friend of ours to go in. So it's like. You know what I mean? You got three friends that are really going to go into the military together at one time. We didn't know what we was getting into. You know, I mean, we had a we had an idea, but we didn't know. It was a process. We went through what was called the, the delayed entry program. And in that process, I actually went back to school. I was in school at Georgia Southern. So, I, you know, I went in a little bit later than some people. You, you got to get in shape a little bit, you know, run a little bit, lift a little weights. I was all into that in high school, but then at Georgia Southern, you know, Daryl wasn't playing football no more. Daryl didn't have basketball. So, you know, you get introduced to the world. <laughs> <laughs> College prepares you for a lot. And, you know, for me to join the Marines, it was, it, was a, it was a process. Like, things weren't going the right way for me. I didn't want to go back home to the carpet mill. Let's do something else. That was like my summer when all a lot of kids that I went to school with, they would go, you know, to the to the beach and different things like that. Daryl had to go back home and get a job. And so I knew what that carpet mill life was like and I know that I didn't want to be there. And you, know, you ain't focused in school, what you gonna do? So sign up for the Marines, but like I said, that process is it's just it's different for different men, women. But uh when they when it's time to go and you go through, you know, the MEPS and all of these things here, and you get your physical, like you get the, the weigh-ins and all this. I mean, they check you from head to toe. When they put you on that bus, it's, it's, it's game on. Like, you go through a process at the MEPS where they swear you in twice. Like, once you raise your hand that second time and you say that you're going to defend this country, foreign and domestic, oh, I don't remember it verbatim, but when you say that that second time, there is no mom can save you, dad can save you. There is no turning back. 
it's it's all the way live then. And I can't speak for no other branches, but to get to Paris Island and to go through that process, when they say we make Marines, and they really mean it, the change is forever, like the, the, everything. You, you just can't say I'm a Marine. You know what I'm saying? You got to go through something to earn that title. They're going to make you earn it for real. I don't regret it, you know? It's just something I had to go through. What is that process like mentally when you're going through that training? The training at Paris Island, it, it was uh, it's very next level, very challenging mentally as much as it is physically because they literally tear you down to, I mean, they have you feeling like you ain't nothing to build you back up into something. You know what I'm saying? Like they, they really try to break people mentally. And when you think you're going to quit, that process of going through the harshness of the training, you know, I mean, like boot camp is three months long if you don't get hurt. And even if you don't get hurt, there's weekly things that you have to accomplish. If you don't accomplish one of those things, you get kicked out. You know, if you can't pass the swim qual, you don't, you don't progress forward. You get kicked back until there's another platoon that picks up and they're at their week five and they're going to the swim qual. Then if you're, if you can get back with them, you know what I mean? And you can pass then, then you progress with them. But you, you might've missed three, four weeks of training. Like if you don't go out there and if you don't, you don't crawl on the, on the rifle range, they pull you out of training until you learn how to shoot that dog on M16. And everybody that did crawl is progressing through training. Like, your three months could be an extended period of time. And all through that time, it's all mental. You know what I'm saying? So to be kicked out of, you know, training or like, say, say you can't do the minimum of three pull-ups. They put you in a platoon to where you have to build your body and show that you can do that. Just the strength part of it, the initial strength test before you can, you know what I mean? Who knows how long that may take, you know, if you didn't prepare yourself in the right way. There's people who go in that are overweight and if they can't do just a minimum, you know what I mean? Like we have like an initial run test. You can't do the bare minimum. They'll pull you out until you prove that you can. And three months is, that's a long time to be away from anything under that intense amount of training and pressure. You know what I'm saying? How did it feel to officially become a Marine? When, when we got back to that doggone, after that nine mile hump, and we were standing at the Iwo Jima Monument. And man, they play that music. Knowing what you just went through. I cried. For real. There was a lot of folk cried. I don't care how tough you think you are. That feeling is in, it's like, it's indescribable. Like, to know that, that, that you, you really proved yourself on that, on that level. Like, and at that point in time, you are considered a, you're on a basic level, entry level of a Marine. It took you three months to get to the basic qualified, trained United States Marine. You got to go through, man, that's, like I said, I cried. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I'm not ashamed to tell nobody either. Because I'm, I, I, a lot of people that have, yeah, oh man, the Marines are this and the Marines are that. Like, like for real, you can, you can, you can say that, but to actually go through it, people think they have an idea, but to actually go through that, like, oh man. Like I said, it's, that's, that's indescribable. Like, I'm going to tell you like this. To be a Marine, right? Say if I, I went to the Marine Corps and I graduated from boot camp and I did all of that and I wanted to, like, get out of the Marine Corps after my first enlistment and transfer to, like, the Navy or the Army or the Air Force or something like that, right? I could do that. 
and whatever rank that you've accomplished up until that point in time, that's what it is. But say you was in one of the other branches, and no knock to anybody that is, because we all defend the Constitution of the United States of America. But if you think you're going to transfer over to a Marine, you got to go through boot camp all over again. There is no just saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a Marine. No. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> there is no, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go through the Air Force boot camp and then I'm going to transfer. No. And you can, you can be a Marine. You can transfer over, but you're going to start from day one with this training. It's, it's, it's next level, you know? So you become a Marine. How long after that did it take for you to get deployed? And curious to know, like, what countries you were deployed to and for how long? I graduated from Paris Island April 13th, 2001, which was Friday the 13th. In my contract, I started out as a reserve because I wanted to go back to school. And, you know, that was part of the reason that I went was, you know, to get some funding for school. But in that process, you know, of being a reserve, you got to understand that at any point in time, if something goes down, which it did, you know, 9-11 happened. If something goes down, like everything that you thought you was about to do stops. And you then become what is known as activated. And your life is just as as if you was uh, full-time, every day, in the core. You live it, eat it, breathe it type of situation, you know? And it happened twice for me. In my enlistment into the reserves of the United States Marine Corps, I got called into active duty twice. And so first time I was activated, my unit went to replace a unit at Camp Pendleton that went to Iraq. And that was in 2003. And I was out there for a few months, like seven or so. I came back home and went to work for a little while. And four months later, they called me back and was like, you know, we got another deployment going. And when I found out about that, I took a, there was a guy that was in my unit who was in college and he was close to graduating. And this time we're going back to California to mile 16. You know, when I was in California in 2003, that was mile 39. You know, this time I'm joining mile 16, which is in Miramar, California, North San Diego. And we're going to Iraq for real. Or at least they told us we was going to Afghanistan back in my unit here in Atlanta. But I got attached to mile 16, and when I got to mile 16, three days after being there, I found out that we were going to Al-Assad, Iraq. I kind of embarrassed myself, but I'm the type of person like, hold on, hold on, that's not what I was told. I raised my hand in formation. In formation, when the sergeant's talking, but this particular day it was a staff sergeant. I won't say his name, but, uh, you know, they were already looking at us like, you know, these guys are reserves or whatever not knowing that we had been in an active duty situation prior to, and I raised my hand in the formation. And so he called me out. I was a Lance Corporal at the time. He was E6. And he was like, what do you want? I was like, you know, I was like, Staff Sergeant, you said a few days we're going to load the plane. The plane was sitting on the flight line to take us. Like, it's already there. It's one big Air Force, I think it's like a C-5. It's humongous. Humongous like cargo plane. It's already on the flight line. And you can't help but to see it. Like, it's the plane's so big. I think when they deployed us, it was probably maybe three, four, five hundred Marines on a plane. Everybody had enough room to lay down in the floor. I mean, they had these little fold-out chairs. They had two helicopters in the back. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was huge. They had all our equipment, all the stuff. It was crazy. But being deployed to Iraq, and that was the only place I've been 
was Al-Assad, Iraq. Like, on a, this is for real. That process, that's, that's, that's a whole nother thing, too. You know, you've been basically trained, and whether you're living your life as an everyday, you know, you're doing this every day. This is what you, like I said, live it, eat it, you breathe it. It's your job. It's your, this is your life. Or if you're doing it as a reserve, like how I was at a, one particular time, and get called back into it, like, that's really a shock. You know what I'm saying? Because you got to get your mind back. Like, like, it's one thing to do it as a reserve, and it's another thing to do it every day. And this is your livelihood. So to, it's like your, your world stops as a reserve, and now you're full-time military active duty, and you're about to go to war. And, I mean, you looking at the plane that's going to take you from Miramar, California, to Germany. I think we, we stopped in Frankfurt, Germany, or something like that. Like, it was 17 straight hours refueling the air type of thing, and we didn't even know what was happening. That flight was that long. That plane was that big. And, you know, we left sunny California. It's like 80, 90 degrees. We landed in Frankfurt, and it's like below freezing. There's big snow mounds where they didn't scrape the, you know what I mean? Like, it's a all this going on, and knowing the next stop from Frankfurt was Kuwait, and they opened that back hatch, and that heat hit you. I don't know how you can prepare your mind for that. It's just something that you just got to go through, whether it be in the Marine Corps or, I mean, the process for the you know sailors in the Navy or the, the soldiers in the Army, the airmen, whatever. Like, but as a Marine, like, my job in the Marine Corps was logistics, you know, like, kind of like what UPS or FedEx is to the civilian world, but with aircraft parts. Even when they say you in the rear with the gear, like at any point in time, you know what I'm saying? Every day I walked around, I had an M16 on my back, you know, or it wasn't too far out of reach. Because we on a base and that base can get overran or they, if they overrun that base, they crazy. You know what I mean? Because the base was pretty secure. Out of side, I was pretty secure. I give it to them. I don't know. They're probably, it's just, like I said, there's nothing that can really prepare you itself for maybe your faith in a higher power. Because... Like I say, when you when you when you go to boot camp and you and you're going through the the you know the MEPS part of it and you've sworn in twice, mom and daddy can't save you. You know? This is a choice that you have made as a young adult. It's it's for real. And then knowing the way the world is now, you know, I mean I went at the beginning when Iraq was not the place that you wanted to be. And I wasn't even in the most dangerous parts. Sure, we got we got rocketed almost on a daily basis. There wasn't a lot of gunfire, you know, bullets flying and all this other stuff. That you know, because I'm I'm wasn't an O three eleven. I want to grunt. Those are the the guys that are out there on the front line. It's really like in them gunfights. You know, I wasn't in that, but just like me and you having this conversation right now, and all of a sudden something hit the ground so freaking hard that like everything trembled like an earthquake, and the boom that goes with that. Hollywood get real close with their movies and they surround sound theaters around the country. But to actually, that's a, that's a movie. You know what I'm saying? After this movie, after that scene, whatever, you're going to put your popcorn down and you're going to go home with your drink and whatever and your date. I'm talking about this is your life and to go through that. And still, you got to perform a job 12 to 14 hours a day. Man. It's rough. It's, it's rough. I don't, look, if I have a worst enemy, I don't wish that on my worst enemy. You, don't, you know what I mean? Some people went over there and didn't come home. There's some people that went over there and they come home 
and they'll never be the same. They might be disfigured. They might be missing limbs. I can't tell you, like, on some of them days, and I'm talking about it's hot. You got to work. You are, We out there working, and you look up, and that medevac helicopter, that big, all you see is that big red cross on the bottom of it. And then it's another one, and another one. And you know what I mean? And you know, you know what that means. <laughs> you know what that means. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Let's let's go to the next question. <laughs> Real interview, though. <laughs> That's the best kind. Yeah. Did you go on any like special missions or what? You mentioned you were in logistics. What did you have to do, like on a daily basis? My job, I didn't go on, on any missions like, you know, leaving the base. Once I was at Al-Assad, I was there. I got promoted to corporal in Iraq, in Al-Assad, maybe a month after being there. I got promoted kind of quick. And they assigned me as a corporal. I was over the issuing desk. So we had we had 13 different type of squadron in one supply house. So when I say 13 different type of squadron, I mean fixed wing, meaning airplanes, different type of aircraft, and rotary wing, meaning different type of helicopters. But there's 13 different types of, it's a plane, it's a helicopter, plane, helicopter. There's 13 different type of squadron, one supply house, and they all ordering the same parts. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I had to make the decision because we didn't have enough. You know what I mean? I was an aviation supply clerk, 66, 72. But even as that, parts to it, I got assigned to the, you know, the consumables and the repairables. There's, 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 there's parts, there's aviation parts that can be reused again, the repairables or the consumables, meaning like, you know, nuts, bolts, and some little small stuff, you know what I mean? Throw it away and get another one, you know what I mean? They don't, not big ticket items. I was responsible for issuing out the gear to different squadrons and fixed wing, one airplane squadron may be ordering the same part as two rotary wing squadrons and you got to decide who's going to get what because everybody need them at the same time. We're in a war. Everything is like priority one, meaning we should have had this yesterday. I mean, I dealt with everything from a two-cent screw or, you know, a nut and bolt set to if that ticket was correct, because I, I went to the sergeant and I asked him, I said, look, man, I don't know if it was a misprint, but it said $100 million on the ticket. I don't, you know what I mean? I was like, man, I don't, I don't think it's $100 million. It can't be. He said, that's what's printed on it, but you assigned to it. Like, that's yours. You got to make that piece move. It was an engine for um, one of the Harrier jets. If it was $100 million, I don't. it couldn't have been. I don't even think the planes cost that much, but they do cost a lot of money. You know what I'm saying? This jet was made by Rolls-Royce. It's one of the, the planes that, like, literally can take off the ground like a, like a helicopter, and they can hover and then take off and fly. It was one of the engines for that. And it was in a container so big, like it was like it was my last piece to move before I could pack my sea bags and come home. And that was a challenge. You know what I'm saying? You think you feel all right, man, my deployment's almost over. I got the orders have come down. It was like, no, nah, you ain't leaving to that move. Do you have any PTSD from your service? Oh man. Post-traumatic stress disorder. And I say that as a 40-year-old man sitting in front of you whose birthday is like in two days, you know what I mean? Like, I'll be, I'll be 41 in two days. But I went to Iraq at the age of 23. And there's things that I live with. 
I definitely got aches and pains body-wise, you know what I mean, from the stress of the wear and tear that the Marine Corps requires on your body. I definitely have that. You know what I mean? I have knee pains. I have an issue with my hip. I have lower back issues. You know, um, you know how you ever heard the saying, you don't look like what you've gone through or what you've been through? I've heard that a lot. You know, people, when I tell them my age, they, for real, you're 40? Or, you know, there's some people that have gone to Iraq, like we, we touched on a little bit, and they come back and they're, they're not the same person that they were prior to going. Prior to going to boot camp, I was a irresponsible, you know, I mean, I went to class, but you got to go to class with your mind right. You can't go under the influence of anything and think that you're going to do something. But then that mindset, that young mindset that, you know, I mean, I mean, I had a structure coming out of high school, but then you got a nine o'clock and a 10 o'clock and you got the whole rest of the day. What you supposed to do with all this time? Tend to get into things. And going through boot camp, I was like, okay, if I can get through that from Paris Island to a couple of years down the road and now you're in Iraq for real and you, and you go through that, there's a thing in, in, in boot camp that's called you get dressed by the numbers <laughs> and you'll understand why you get dressed by the numbers when you're in a combat situation. You'll get fully dressed in a minute. When you hear something hit the ground so freaking hard, like I, like I spoke on earlier, and everything shake like an earthquake and you ain't never felt nothing like that, like, like I can't stand thunderstorms. I can't, I can't stand for somebody to slam a door. You see how I'm sitting right now? Like, I'm not sitting straight up in front of you, right? I got the chair at an angle because I got to know what that door finna do. I'm 40 now. And I went over there when I was 23. You see that? I don't know if you, I don't know if you even like, why is he not sitting straight up in front of me? Like I, I really, you know what I'm saying? Like your little girl coming right here, that, like, it, it would have shook me if I wasn't sitting the right way. You know what I mean? Or like say she was right here, I'm looking at you, but then a, a door slam, like that, that would throw me off a little bit. As a Marine in Al-Assad, it wasn't like every day we in a gunfight, but every day I heard a boom. Al-Assad was a, a base that was 23 miles in radius. So you think a radius is half of a circle. You know what I'm saying? So from one side of the base to the other, it's 46 miles. That's like a little small city. In big base, though. And, you know, it was a, it was a lot that happened. I, I saw things, you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's things that happened at Alicide that I'll never forget. The first night we got hit up, I think we might have been there maybe two, two and a half weeks. And it was like, you know, welcome to Alicide. That first night we got hit up with those mortar rounds. You ain't never felt nothing like this. This is your first deployment. This is my first deployment. You know what I'm saying? I was, at that point in time, they told us like, yeah, you ain't got to wear your flags all the time. And you ain't got to have, you know, your Kevlar. You ain't got to have that with you at all the time. I had an M16 with you at all the time. You know what I'm saying? But at that point in time, it was like, you know, it was kind of relaxed. Because Al-Assad was one base at that particular time that had yet to be hit. So when we got there, as the Marine Corps, we took the command over from the Army who had been there since the onset of the war when it kicked off in 2003. And that night, it was like, welcome to Al-Assad, welcome to Iraq. They played a video for us. It was real quick when we touched down in Kuwait. And right before it was over, like, the guy that was talking, he was some kind of general or something in the Marine Corps, and he was like, 
the last thing he said, he said, never for one second forget that you were in a combat situation. When we first got there, those first like two and a half weeks, the, the transition from, you know, like getting to Kuwait and from Kuwait to they fly you into Iraq, you know, for them first couple of days, I mean, like this is like not a place that you want to be ever. Like I do not inspire to go back to Iraq for nothing. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like you're the middle of the desert. That night, when they walked them water rounds into to that compound, I don't know where they was coming from, you know what I mean? But it started off like small thuds, and they just get bigger and louder. And like I said, Hollywood can get close, but when you're feeling something, and you and it's like you hear it coming, you don't know where it's coming from, but it's like, like they were walking the rockets into the compound. So it's like one hit, and the next one hit a little closer, the next one hit a little closer. And the booms, as they get closer, they get louder, and the vibrations the ground is more intense you know what I mean and then it's just like they're raining in on you but this is all night the first night and like no sleep this is not a drill this is everything that you've ever thought you was going to train for and while they're walking it in like that night we had people to try to overrun the gate and there was a gunfight I wasn't in it you know what I'm saying but you could hear it I heard of a 50 cal, it had to be a 50 cal, the way, that, the way it sounded, the way, it, you know, the, you know, like it was, it was, I can't even replicate it, but I heard that, like, you know, the, the gun going off and then the boom, boom, boom. So PTSD, do I have it? Yeah. Some things then that go on that you, that you'll never forget. Like no matter what you do, some people, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, it leads them to drugs, it leads them to alcohol. You know, when it comes to like computers and different things like that, the computer is built off of the functionality of what a human brain can do. But one thing we can't do that that computer, when the user uses it, is you got control, alt, delete, and that file is forever gone, right? We don't have a control, alt, delete to our brain. And no matter what you try to do to forget what happened over there, you can never wipe it out. I don't know how... There's some people that go through counseling. I myself go through counseling currently. Post-traumatic stress disorder is real. Like, I have my issues. I have my days. Before we started this interview, you know, we, we had a little small conversation. Like, man, I mean, like, there's certain things to where I feel like I'm not up to par. It's where I felt I would or envision myself at 40 years old. I feel like I'm way behind the power curve. And that's because of dealing with depression and dealing with the thoughts. They talk about veterans, you know, committing suicide. PTSD is a, is a real thing. I have crazy, I've had crazy thoughts, you know, that, that have entered my, my thought process. Like I said, I go to counseling now. We were talking music before we got started. And I was like at a point in place where I, I couldn't hear certain things like I hear them now because your mind is so bogged down with, you know, went to war, you know, went to back to school, get your degree, can't find a job or the job ain't this and the job ain't that. And you see other people around you progressing in life. And that's all part of PTSD, not to make an excuse, but I mean, I've gone through counseling. I definitely could use more, you know what I mean? And that's something that, you know, like they, they, they talk about mental health and, you know, in the black community and, and Iraq, you know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't know if anybody could go be deployed in a combat situation and come back home and say that they okay. I'm, I'm dead serious. And you can try to 
like me, you know what I'm saying? You can you can try you, you can try to be a tough guy if you want to. It's okay to ask for some help. And it took me a long time to understand that. And so, um, but yeah, post-traumatic stress disorder is a definite thing in my life and and I'm trying to deal with it accordingly. That is understandable. Very much so. Yeah. Deep. When you came back home, did you feel celebrated for your service to the U.S.? Did I feel celebrated? Um, I'm going to say yes and no. There were people that uh, on the way back home, you know, when we finally got back to New York, we had a layover in New York for like three hours and they had like a, a certain part of the airport that we were allowed to, you know, walk through, kind of stretch your legs out. You know, you've been on this plane ride from Iraq back to Kuwait, get on the big jet at 767, but that was a big, pretty plane. You know what I mean? It wasn't a military flight. This was you know, straight for us. You know, all the Marines that ran up them ladders to get on that plane. Um, you know, when you, when you come back, and I'm talking about we was dirty, <laughs> eating haircuts. And you can tell, I mean, I guess when we got to New York, this was like really my first time ever being in New York. And to have people walk up and be like, Did y'all, are y'all just getting home? Like, yeah, we just, you know what I mean? We Like literally, I mean, we look like it. We dirty. <laughs> Boots look like they've been walking around in the dirt. You know, people think it's sand. It's like grit. The slightest little breeze will blow it up off the ground. You know what I mean? So it's dusty. We look dusty. We look like we need a bath for real. You know what I mean? Like, and there were people that wanted you to, I'm talking about random folks. Hey, will you take a picture with my kid? Like, can you hold him? Do you mind holding You know, for real. It's in the airport. Yo, that was, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know who these people were, you know what I'm saying? Of all nationalities, you know? I mean, we're taking pictures with families and, you know, I mean, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like everybody, but it was a couple of people, you know what I'm saying, that really acknowledged the fact, like, you see, you know, three, four hundred people in uniforms that look like they ain't crispy, they ain't, you know what I mean? They must have just got back, you know? And some people will ask you, you know what I'm saying, that to be recognized in that manner, it did. It did feel good. You know what I mean? I think my unit dropped the ball big time um, back here in Atlanta. I ain't going to call them out. But maybe it was because we were reserved. I don't know. But I don't feel like a reserve. You know what I'm saying? I didn't do I didn't. I didn't sign up. And I didn't just do one weekend out of the month and two weeks out of every summer and go to school just to get the GI Bill. I didn't do that. When the country called my name, it was for real. You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't run from it. You know what I'm saying? There was, there was people in our unit that made excuses, and they ran from the order, or something came up, and, you know, they can't go on the deployment all of a sudden. Why, how you can't go on a deployment? Like, dude, how do you turn this down? You can't turn it down. This is what you signed up for. So, you know, I tell my story, you know, from I, I've seen both sides of the fence. But I don't feel like I'm just a reservist. And that's an offensive word. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, that's, that, that, that's a trigger for me. When people just try to diminish something that they can never do. You know what I'm saying? I've had people go, man, you were just in the reserves. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay. I, was just, I just went one weekend out of every month and two weeks out of every summer. No, no. I know that's what I signed up to do. 
but at any given time. You know what I'm saying? So there's times that I felt like, yes, I was appreciated. And then there's times that I felt that I haven't been. Sometimes people try to downplay. My DD-214 says I got a whole bunch of campaign medals and all this other stuff. Some people call it chest candy. You know, I got a few medals and it's got an honorable discharge on it. I did, I did my time, you know what I mean? I did it. And I live with it every day. Looking back on everything that you've been through, would you do it over again? Yeah, I definitely would do it all over again because that point in time in my life helped define who I am as a man today. Could I do it all over again at 40? <laughs> oh, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, I think about that. Like, if I would have I would have did 20 years, I'd be retired from the Marine Corps, like, this year. From 2001 to 2021. Like, April 13th of this year made the 20th year anniversary since I walked across that parade deck at Paris Island. And I'm like, I would have stayed in. I think about that a lot. Like, what What if I would, who, who, who would I be? Like, what rank would I have earned? Would I have had to go back to Iraq? Because I'm telling you, one time is enough. One time is enough. I, you know, I have a cousin who I know was deployed three times in the Marines. Yeah, I'm going to say his name. Marcus Watson. I'm going to call you out. Three times? You should talk to him. Because I can tell you this little bit. Marcus got some stories to tell you. And to know that me and Marcus was working at Shaw one summer. And he came in and told me, like, me and him working now, family. Because I'm done. I can't do this no more. I'm like, well, what, what you finna do? You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to Marine Corps. And he went. And, like, maybe a year or two later, I was in the Marine Corps. And then in 2004, the next time I see Marcus, we went from the Creel Mill at Plant 81 at Shaw to the next time I see him, we in Al-Assad, Iraq. And he done, I, don't, I, don't, I think that might have been his second deployment, my first. Marcus, my cousin Darius, Corey, you know, Free, we was out there together. Ofo, King, Brew, we was out there together. But to see your family from your hometown in Iraq in, in, in a war conflict, the next time you see your family, y'all in the middle of the desert, Al-Assad, 100 and whatever degrees, <laughs> that was crazy. That was crazy. He got, like I said, Cuz got some stories to tell. Just from a military person's perspective, your perspective, what are your thoughts on what's happening right now in Afghanistan? It's hard to think about the men and women who've been deployed over there. I mean, we're talking, we, we're talking a war that's lasted 20-something years. And for all that they said we went over there for, when we pull out and bring us home, you know, our troops home, it's almost like, you know, for the ones that have lost their lives, the ones who are living disfigured, the ones like me who... I may not have the scars that people can see, but I got scars, you know, from my time over there. But it's, it's almost like, you know, was it all worth it? Because they are the, the so-called Taliban or the bad guys or whatever you want to. They're stronger now than they was ever back then. It seems like they are. the way. I mean, they, like we, we pull out and it's just like 
they call them terrorists. Like they call them insurgents and all these different names. And, and, but that was one thing, like when I was over there in 2004, like you didn't know who was who. They ain't walking around in uniform. Those are men, women, little boys, and little girls walking around in their everyday attire, whatever they wear. You see what I'm saying? How can you fight something that you can't see? You don't know who's who over there. And to know that, like, just as our our military has grown and we've been over there for all these years and you think you got a hold on something, now that we're being removed from the situation, you see how strong they have grown over the years. And it's like, we've been over here fighting that force off or what we thought was that force. It's almost like the analogy of you step on an anthill and you remove your foot. And once your foot is gone, all the ants come out to see. That's what that feels like to me. It was kind of like, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Yeah. I mean, think about, I mean, I still got fairly good use of my body, you know? the shell of a body that the creator gave us. Think about the ones that, like, they, you know, they, they went through an IED attack and they're disfigured, like, leg blown off, arm missing, just to say we're bringing the troops home. I mean, we can't, we can't police the world. You know what I mean? Like, nowhere in this world, if the United States has gone somewhere, it's like we don't leave. And this is, this is like the one time, you know, in my 40 years that I can think that, okay, we, we're pulling out for real. You know what I mean? Enough is enough. And then it almost feels like, was we ever even there? I mean, they know we was there. We know we was there. But, like, again, that what, was it worth it? You know, I sacrificed for this country. Not just me, but a lot of men and women did. And a lot of us didn't come home. As people say, freedom ain't free. Somebody got Somebody had to do it. For the servicemen and women, I mean, it's, it's, almost like, it's almost like a slap in the face. He says, I, feel, I can't speak for everybody. It, it do feel like that. I mean, I watch, I watch the news, but things like this, I can't watch like that. You know what I'm saying? Because, it, I mean, it just, it just puts you in a, in, a, in, a, in a funk. Like, it puts you in a, a headspace that, that, that don't feel good. Do you have any takeaways from your experience being in the military? I would definitely say, you know, there, there's takeaways as a Marine. And they say that the change is forever. There's, there's things that I do now just, just out of habit. I don't realize it till somebody points it out. Or um, I've had people say, you in the military, weren't you? I was like, how you know? Walk like it. You was in the Marines? I was like, yeah. Yeah, you walk like it. I've heard that a lot. I've heard that a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a life-changing experience. There's, there's nothing that you can do, you know, as a, as, a, as a Marine. Like, once you go through that process and they tear you down just to build you up, you're gonna take you're gonna take a lot of good. You're gonna take a lot of bad. I mean, just little things. You know, what I mean, like the way you fold clothes, the way you um, pack a bag for a trip, a vacation, or a business trip, or something like that. The way you pack your things. A lot of takeaways that are good, and there's some things that are bad. I can't speak about the other branches, but you know, as a Marine, honorably discharged, I made the rank of sergeant. So I guess I did pretty good. I did. I guess I did okay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I guess I did okay. Well, Daryl, thank you for coming and sharing your experience. And definitely thank you for your service to the country and the sacrifice that you made for us. I appreciate you. To all who listen, thank you for listening. Allow me to share my little story. I greatly appreciate it. And, and I, I congratulate you on what you got going. 
I wish you much more success, many more interviews. Really got a good thing going. Thank, Thank you. you. Stay tuned for the mic drop moment. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And guess what? It's free. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. You're listening to You Talk, I'll Listen, hosted by Shannon Chapman. I listened, and here's what I heard. It's time for the mic drop, y'all. When Daryl joined the military at the age of 20, he had no idea what he was getting himself into. However, he survived the grueling physical and mental process of boot camp and became a United States Marine. Though he signed on to be a reserve, when duty called, he had to be ready. He had to drop everything he had going on in his life to actively serve this country and the American people. That in itself is a huge sacrifice that should be acknowledged. Any hopes and dreams he might have had at the moment had to be put on hold indefinitely. Any member of the military should be celebrated and appreciated regardless of their reserve status or rank. If they didn't do anything else, They survived boot camp, which I don't think I could have ever done. In that process, they swore an oath to protect and serve, no matter the risk. And that is more than a lot of people have the courage to do. Daryl did not give up his life from a mortality standpoint like so many others did, including the 13 brave servicemen and women who lost their lives recently in Kabul. However, from listening to his story, I'm inclined to say that in a way, he still sacrificed his life for his country, and here's why. His life was put on hold after 9-11 when he was called into active duty. He has constant struggles with PTSD and depression now, both of which have interfered with the progression of where he wanted to be in his life at the age of 41. His life has never been the same since his time in Iraq. And his computer analogy helped me understand what he deals with. There's no Control-Alt-Delete button to make the trauma-fueled memories disappear. This is something he will live with for the rest of his life here on Earth. And he wasn't even on the front lines 
So I can't imagine what those people go through. We do for our veterans, but hearing all about what he goes through almost 20 years later, I sometimes wonder if we do enough. Thanks so much for listening. I'd love for you to join me and a community of other listeners on our Facebook group called I Listen to You Talk. Share your thoughts about an episode or give suggestions for upcoming show topics. See you there. Grace and blessings. Blessings.